Hey folks, it's David Bourne. Welcome to the David Bourne Show. In this episode, I am super excited about. It is with my friend, Dr. Cynthia Miller. Her father was one of the builders of the first atomic bombs, including the two bombs that were dropped on Japan at the end of World War II. Cynthia has lived an amazing life, uh, but because of the close proximity to this massive destruction of, of atomic weapons, she's suffered with debilitating pain her whole life. But amazingly, she's found ways to overcome that pain. She has been uh, practicing in clinical practice for 35 years, working with thousands of people. And what she does is she helps with her unique blend of cellular science, psychology, and quantum physics, but in particular, just how she has overcome this pain with love, generosity, and gratitude. So I hope you will enjoy this episode where we talk mostly about her memoir that I witnessed her writing. It's called Unseen Connections, a memoir from pain to joy. You can also see other books she's written at her website, drcynthiamiller.com. Her latest is called The Inner Revolution, Uncover the Magic and Delight of Embodying Your Soul Essence. And also we talk about a book she wrote earlier called The Art of Radical Gratitude, Your Guide to Love, Joy, and Abundance. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I sure did enjoy uh, my conversation with Dr. Cynthia Miller. Well, I'm here today with Dr. Cynthia Miller, who I have known for a few years, and it's it's been months and months. It's probably been a year or more that I've wanted to interview Cynthia Miller. So I am very excited to have you here today, Cynthia, to hear about your life and your books, particularly your memoir that I know you're rewriting. And so... Uh, I'll just say I'm very grateful to be here with you. Oh, I can say the same. I'm really excited to be here with you. <laughs> Good. Gratitude yeah. is a is a big part of your life. It is. <laughs> and so uh, I thought starting with gratitude would be appropriate. Perfect. Perfect. So uh, before we say who you are and what is what makes you um, who you are. I want to talk about a point in your in your memoir, which is unseen connections from pain and violence to joy. There's a chapter that, uh, well, there's a section where you have um, you've come out of the woods. Uh, you're a big nature lover, and just. <laughs> so many ways and i want to talk about that too but you've come out of living in the woods i believe and i there's been a either a financial crisis or someone has stolen all your money and you're at your wits end do you know what story i'm talking about i do i do <laughs> and and gratitude saves you. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. How did you get to that spot? Yeah. Well, I had just, I'd sold my house and I'd put everything in storage 
and I was traveling and I was on a little vacation up in the woods, up in the mountains, because I love being in the mountains. And I put every, all the money, everything in the stock market. I'd been researching for years and I thought I did all the right things. I read all the books and so I thought I was doing okay. And then I came out of the woods and I discovered that everything I had in the stock market was completely gone. It was that stock market scam. And then a few days later, I discovered that everything I had in storage had been stolen and the storage company went was filing bankruptcy. So it's like my whole life had just ended. Hmm. And I was in massive pain and I didn't know what to do. I was in a place where I knew no one. Yeah. Um, I just felt really lost. Why were you in massive pain? Well, I had been in pain my whole life. Hmm. Um, I had lots of radiation in my body from my dad's work. And it was kind of like this electroshock in the back of my neck that was constantly going. And I was 60 years old. And at that point, it was like, I want to be done. I want to be done with pain. I have nothing to live for. I have no way to survive. Hmm. So on the day I was going to end my life, this energy or this, these words from my guts came up and said, choose gratitude. I'm going, what on earth do I have to be grateful for, was mm. my response. And so there was this big inner battle between choosing gratitude and being done with everything. And finally, mm. I said, okay, I'll give gratitude a shot. I can always kill myself later. That was my out, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I made a very yeah. deep commitment to choosing gratitude no matter what. And it seemed absolutely insane at times because my mind would go, how on earth can I be grateful for whatever it is? And I said, well, we're just going to do this. That's the, that's the deal I made with myself. To choose gratitude. To choose gratitude, no matter what. Give give us an example of what what do you mean? What would what what would an example of you choosing gratitude mean? Okay, so at one point, this was like nine months later. I'd finally gotten up back on my feet, and I was, but everything was stolen. And here I am. I'm moving into my first little apartment, and I have this garage sale fork. And I'd had this beautiful silver, and I was really pissed that I had this horrible garage sale fork. It's all I could afford. Mm. And I said, I'm thankful for this fork. And I felt nothing. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I went, thank you for my fork. And then my whole body started shifting. Everything started relaxing. And then I went, thank you for my fork. Mm. And then a few minutes later, I realized I had this awakening. Oh, the silver was all filled with radiation. It had been my parents, and it had been our parents' home, and then I inherited it. And so every time I was eating, I was stuffing radiation into my mouth. 
And so I went, thank you for stealing my fork. Wow. It was like this complete turnaround. And then a few minutes later, it was like, oh, my goodness, but someone else is, whoever took it, is eating this radiation-filled fork. And I was kind of going, ooh, I don't want them to be suffering. So I was sending gratitude to them hmm. and energy to them. And so it was like I never assumed I would want to be sending gratitude or good wishes to someone who'd stolen my things. Yeah, wow. That's a big shift. Yeah. And so... That just kept happening. As I sent gratitude to the pain in my neck, it started shifting. And, and I can see what's going on in my cells, in my body. And so I would thank it. And I could watch how the gratitude was moving in my body. And I could see the neurology change. Hmm. And so I kept going and thanking the, this pain in my neck that I'd had for 60 years. And it started dissolving. So just becoming less painful? Yeah. Bit yeah. by bit? Yeah. And so it wow. took time. It, it wasn't fast. It wasn't like a five-minute process. But mm -hmm. it had been going on for my whole life. So hmm. I just kept thanking it and thanking the radiation, which I never would have assumed I could even possibly do. Wow. So then I started seeing that all the low frequencies can't exist in a higher frequency of gratitude. So whatever the fear is that was arising, I would thank that, and the fear would just dissolve. Because wow. it's a low, low frequency. And so then as I kept getting deeper and deeper into gratitude, it was profound what I was discovering. But it's the gratitude spirals. It's like it's going in in a spiral movement. And I realized everything in nature is spiraling. And all the atoms are moving. And if you look at photos of the galaxies, they're spiraling. And so it's like, oh, and I was seeing the gratitude spiral through my cells. Hmm. So it's more than just writing down I'm thankful for today or whatever that might be, but really going in and thanking all the things that are absolutely horrific and they start to shift. So this pain that you had for 60 years, and you just talked about radiation and the fork and um, I've read <laughs> your book twice now, so I know what you're talking about, but to someone who doesn't know what you're talking about, explain how radiation became a part of your, your life. Yeah. Um, well, before I was conceived, my dad built Hanford, the world's first plutonium plant. And then he transferred that plutonium to Los Alamos to build Trinity, the first bomb. So I was conceived with sperm that were covered with radiation in terms of the DNA. And then as a child, when I was four, my dad left for 13 months to go build the first, hydro the first hydrogen bomb. And he came home, and the first night at dinner, 
I was really sensitive as a kid. I could see this bomb exploding in the middle of the dining room table. Mm. And so I could see the radiation falling and getting in the water and getting in the soil and getting in the leaves of the plant. And I couldn't figure out how to get it out. So at mm. dinner, I asked him, and I was five, and so I, I didn't have the words or the vocabulary. So I just said, who's going to clean up the mess? How do, we, how do we clean this up? And he got really kind of angry, and he stood up, and he pointed at me, and he sent me to my room. It's the only mm. time in my life I was sent to my room. And so I'm hiding in the corner, just kind of rocking back and forth, going, oh, I shouldn't have spoken up. And I'm just a girl, so I have no value. And I want to discover why people hate and kill each other. What is this that makes people want to do this? So that kind mm. of started the whole path of my life. Wow. So your dad built hyd the hydrogen bombs that later... Yeah and, yeah, and then he was in charge of all the bombs the United States built until there was a moratorium on testing nuclear weapons. Wow. So through the my whole childhood, he would come home with more radiation. He'd be gone for months, he'd watch the bombs explode, and then he'd come home. And so it, it's a frequency that was in his body that carries out and, you know, got into the silverware, got into our bodies. It was into mm -hmm. everything in the environment. So a good way to, to think about that is maybe you walk into a room and someone's had a fight and you can just feel the energy. It's like really tense. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like that on a much greater scale hmm. it's a, yeah it's a frequency yeah yeah you mentioned the frequency we were talking about the frequencies of fear being low yeah and so is is this radiation you're talking about would you put that as a low frequency it is a very low frequency okay yeah. Okay. Yeah, the you know the purpose of the bombs is to kill and destroy yeah. and annihilate whole populations of people. Yeah. So that's what the frequency of it is. So it's a very low frequency. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. And then you bring in the high frequency of gratitude or love, and that low frequency can't exist. It can't survive in that higher frequency uh-huh wow okay so you and i've talked before about how <laughs> i think that your life is amazing but i'm i've used the word weird yeah. and uh i don't mean that in a negative way but coming from my perspective of small town southeastern united states um you know, I'm 55 years old, and so I grew up um, in a time where there was a lot of fear of, of nuclear um, war. You know, Russia and the United States were 
very much at odds throughout my entire young childhood. Um, but yeah, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, um, and you have your PhD in, in this, right. In this type of, of yeah, study. It's, it's, it's in cellular transformation. Okay. So it's a combination of quantum physics, biology, psychology. It's in the field of psychology, but it's a lot of different fields brought together. Yeah. 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 So your dad was a physicist. No, he was a construction right? engineer. He was a construction engineer. Okay. So he took the the scratch board of, you know, Einstein and Oppenheimer and all the, the great scientists. He took all of that and transformed it into an actual physical bomb. So gotcha. he's the one that helped design the specifications of what needed to go where and how it all needed to fit together for it to work. Gotcha. Yeah. So he was an engineer. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you mentioned earlier when you, when you you talked about you being, um, five years old at that table and you went into your room Mm -hmm. and you, you, uh, you were huddled up and scared. You mentioned uh, that y- you were not important because you're a girl. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, this was the 50s, and women were supposed to be housewives at home. We weren't, you know, you weren't supposed to think. Whenever I had a question about anything, my mother's response was, just don't think about it. My whole childhood, same response, don't think about it. Hmm. Yeah. And we were just to be the ones that took care of the man and make sure the man lived his dreams. So my mother didn't have the opportunity to live her dreams. She wanted to be a fashion designer. But she was stuck taking care of two kids while her husband was off running around the world building bombs. You know, mm-hmm. she was not a happy camper, but she had she it was like she had no choice back then. And I know other women have had choices, but in our reality there was no choice. Hmm. Yeah. So you grew up um uh, not believing you would be a, a, a PhD or... No. No, my whole upbringing was learning how to take care of a man, to be a good housewife. Hmm. I was yeah. sent to college to find a eligible husband. Okay, yeah. Yeah. When I graduated, my parents didn't even know what my, PhD, what my uh, degree was in from college just you know my bachelor's degree they didn't have a clue it was only my mom saying well did you find a husband (laughs) yeah right (laughs) she wanted you to get your mrs exactly (laughs) yeah 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 well i know that um wow so we were talking about gratitude 
and how that transformed. And you talked about energy and it's trans it's transformed in this pain that you talked about being at the back of your neck. Um, you know, having read your memoir, which is just fascinating and, and unbelievable, literally like I read, I reread it. I'm like, I can't believe this. Like, this is so amazing. But I, I know you to give some background to, to the listeners and watchers. I've known you since 2020 and I've read your work almost every day because you, you write a lot and we've been in a writing group. It started out with a Seth Godin, uh, writing group and it was, I believe the spring of 2020, maybe it was summer by the time I first, I think the first exposure to your work were some images, I believe of you riding a camel was that in the fifties or early sixties, maybe? Oh, I was uh, surrounded by camels in India. Okay, yeah, so you spent that would have been nineteen sixty four. Okay, you lived abroad in your in your different times in your youth. Yeah, and you're writing your memoir, this memoir, <laughs> and I'm reading it, and I'm just thinking, who is this person? <laughs> and I was intrigued. And then, you know, a lot of the, I'm, I'm kind of woo-woo averse. Now, I'm a life coach now <laughs> with Martha Beck. We call ourselves wife Wayfinders, and we're very woo-woo. The group is very woo-woo. And what I mean by woo-woo, I mean, you know, new age-ish, different understanding of the universe that's that's not you know, I, I was raised in the Christian church, and so I have a Judeo-Christian background of understanding mixed in with science. And what are we supposed to believe? We're supposed to believe both. And then as a child, I guess in the 70s, I started hearing about uh, different ideas. And I got interested in Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell and mythology. So, uh, and of course, if you read the Bible, there's a lot of woo-woo weird stuff in there, but you kind of hold it at an arm's distance. And you say to yourself, probably subconsciously, well, yeah, that maybe happened, but it really doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> but then I'm reading your book, and I'm there's all this crazy stuff that you've been through. Yeah. And, and a lot of it has to do with you dealing with this pain that you've, it seems to come and go, but it, so tell me about just what it was like to grow up and move through your life with this, this pain and. How did that shape you? Wow. Um, I remember when I was about 24, 25, um, I'd always had pain. And I, there was this whole, all these magazines had articles about hypoglycemia. And I started reading them. And 
I had every symptom that was listed in every mm. article. And so I wanted to go to the doctor and get the test. And the doctors back then said, oh, no, you couldn't possibly know what's going on. You're a woman. And I was like, mm. okay. So my husband talked to the doctor and the doctor said, well, we're going to give you this test for your husband's peace of mind. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so, I had, so I had this eight-hour glucose tolerance test. I passed out three times in the hospital while they gave it to me. They got the test results. I had the worst case the hospital had ever seen. Wow. So I got off all sugar, alcohol, and caffeine. So that was 51 years ago. So, and I had never heard of a healing crisis or anything like that. So for the first couple of weeks, it was just awful. I had this, it was like my hair was grease and all this I just my body just reeked. It was horrible. But after from, three weeks, from the detox of the sugar, from the detox, okay, ah, uh, okay. Yeah. I'd been on sugar my whole life, and so then, after three weeks, I had like half an hour, and I didn't have a headache. I was. It was wow. profound. I called every single person I knew and said, "Do you have a headache?" And they go, "Well, no." And then I call the next person, I go, do you have a headache? And they go, no. And I went to work and I said, do you have a headache? And it never occurred to me that people didn't have headaches all the time because I oh. had always had a headache. Wow. And so at that moment, I went, what else, what other things do I not know about? Hmm. Because I've lived in this reality of always having a headache. So then there were lots of layers of other pain, but the headache was the first one of going, oh, wow, this is incredible. So at first I wanted to be normal. And I thought, no, I don't want to be normal. I want to be the best that I can be, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the beginning of this part of my journey, yeah. So one of the uh, one of the treatments that I remember you having was it and I don't know if it was before this point or after but I remember you went to see a Chinese doctor maybe in San Francisco Okay who, yeah who did yeah, needles to, on your spine yeah. yeah so I went to a an acupuncturist in Oakland California Okay um and this was before mainstream America knew about acupuncture. So early and for 70s? Anyone, yeah. Okay. 1972. Okay. So for someone to practice acupuncture in the States, then they had to be a medical doctor and an acupuncturist. So I went mm -hmm. to this Chinese doctor and... I was the youngest person there. Everybody else was way older, and they'd been tried everything possible. Yeah. Um, so I went, and he only gave me a few needles the first time. And he said, you're really sensitive. And I thought, okay, I only have to have a few. That's fine. <laughs> and so I went back, and I was going to him for my migraine headaches. This was a different headache from a hypoglycemic headache. Gotcha. So then um, 
at one point he put needles up my back and I started feeling very strange. And so he took the needles out immediately. And I went home and I just knew something was really off. I didn't know what was going on. But I made my husband promise me he wouldn't take me to the emergency room because I knew American doctors didn't know anything about acupuncture. Mm-hmm. And I, so I, I didn't feel like it would work. I was very clear. I did not want to go to the emergency room. So I just kept feeling worse and worse. And then I went into a coma. And then I had a near-death wow. experience. And so I'm going down this incredible tunnel of light. And I get to this space of light and And it was almost like there was this invisible line that I couldn't cross over. And I really wanted to cross over this line. Hmm. It was just incredible. And there was this beautiful angelic music. And it was just, it felt like home. I, I just wanted to stay. And I was told very clearly that I couldn't. I had to go back to Earth. And I didn't want to, but they made me. And... I, they told me to turn around, and I turned around. I could see my body. It was kind of like I was half dissolved into the bed, and I could see my husband there. And I could mm-hmm. feel it was like he had these strings of love pulling me back into my body. So I came oh. back, and um, in the morning, I woke up, and I could hear him on the phone saying, She's alive. She's alive. She's not coming to work today, but she's alive. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So what was it like after that? Had anything changed? Well, two days later, I'm sitting on the couch kind of recovering from the near-death experience. And this bolt of energy goes up my spine and shoots out the top of my head. And I look down and I can see inside the cells in my arm. And my husband's standing there and I look up at him and I can see inside his body. And I look out the window and all the trees have all these auras and colors around them. And um, it was profound. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I thought it would go away in a day or so. I had no idea what was going on. I'd walk down the street and I could see inside people's bodies walking down the street. It was really hard. Um, I'd walk into library and all the thought forms from the books would kind of, it was kind of like this avalanche of thought forms and I'd pass out. And pass out in record stores. I could hear all the music that had been played. It was like wow. all the all the music would come in on different dimensions, and it hit my nervous system, and I'd pass out on the floor. I'd pass out in the grocery store when I, would, especially the cereal aisle where you go down, and all the aber- subliminal advertising on the cereal boxes. It's like I could mm. hear it screaming at me. And then I'd pass out in the middle of the grocery store. It, so it was very, very difficult. And four years later, I, a friend said, every time I read this book, I think of you. 
So I bought the book, and it was called uh, Kundalini by Gopi Krishna. And I realized I'd had a spontaneous Kundalini awakening. And that's what totally rewired my brain in that split second. Um, And usually you have to, you know, meditate for years and kind of be on this path to awaken the Kundalini. Well, mine just did it Hmm. after the after the acupuncture treatment. So who knows? But it was challenging to be in the world at that point. Yeah. And so how did you come out of that? You said it had been four years where you learned, oh, this exists in the world somewhere. Yeah. Uh, So what I I ended up doing was... um, I became one of the first female whitewater river guides. And okay, that's with, not the. I, <laughs> that's a that's a whole nother. I, I okay. Not yeah, the answer so, I was expecting, but go on. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. I, I had I had to get away from civilization. I see. I had to get away from all the input of all the energies in the stores, all the chaos in the streets. I had to escape into the quiet of nature to heal my body. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So then I came out. You're in your 30s at this point? Yeah. So then I came out. I was a whitewater river guide for five years. And then I came out. And that's when, so that's when I discovered it was a spontaneous Kundalini awakening. So I guess it was five years. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So you you uh, were having these and you were passing out, uh, sounds like, left and right. And, and that's when you realized you needed to get away from the stimulus of... of yeah, the it wasn't world. quite that logical, though. Gotcha. <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, yeah, a lot of lot of not logical in that story. <laughs> in my whole life, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. working in a in a travel agency, and I had the opportunity to be the uh, the assistant leader on the first Mount Everest cleanup trek. Ah, okay. so I went to I went to Nepal, and this was in 1976, and um, so. Hiking in the high Himalayas in 76, there was no outside stimulation of electronics or anything like that. You know, I was just trekking every day up in the high mountains. And as I was doing that, I kept thinking about wanting to be a whitewater river guide. Hmm. So I, because a friend had taken me on a trip and I really liked it. Ah, okay. Yeah, so I was in Nepal for three months, and I came back to Berkeley, and it was just frantic, and I was just like, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. So then I went, and uh, I knew the owner of a whitewater river company, and he thought before I'd been a bookkeeper at the travel agency, and so he thought I'd make a good bookkeeper, but. I refused to be inside, and I worked for free for months fixing boats and, you know, 
doing all that kind of stuff. And then I learned how to row a boat. Well, I know for your from your book that was not a that was not an easy experience. Right. And yeah. I know that the, the guys on the crew were not expecting or maybe wanting a woman yeah. river yeah. guide. Yeah, there were forty guys and me. Wow. Yeah, it was like having to break through into this male dominant world. And yeah. then it after you know, after a while it became absolutely magical. It was incredible, but it took a while to break through. Yeah, to be accepted. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This was in uh, California, did you say? Yeah. Yeah, that's where I started. Yeah. What river? Well, that was, I started on the Stanislaus River. Okay. But, but then I, that first summer at the end of the year, I rode the Grand Canyon. And so I rode all the big rapids, all the big rivers in the United States and Alaska. Wow. Yeah, I rode really big ones there too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it was very exciting. I bet. I bet. Yeah. I that it, then this was in the in the mid to late seventies that you were doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's of course that's big now and well established, but back then I I imagine it wasn't all that common or yeah. Yeah, in Alaska, I was part of the first exploratory river trip on the Copper River. So, you know, we were just venturing out into new territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That must have been amazing. Just... Yeah. Would you be out there for, for I guess, weeks? These trips would take... They would take. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My first trip down the Grand Canyon was 23 days, which is really mm. rare. Um, so, and sometimes some of the trips were only five or six days, but we were on the river the whole time. And then we'd have a layover day where we'd go to town and buy food, but we still slept on the river the whole time. Hmm. Wow. So I was really on the river for six or eight months at a time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the pain that that you had, you had this, you had this procedure in Berkeley with the doctor putting needles in your spine, and that caused this Kundalini awakening, which. You know, the closest thing that my mind can can come to, I know a little bit about left brain, right brain, and a lot of the the woo-woo weird stuff happens on the the right side of the brain. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. Uh, something, you know, even though other people in the world may have had this 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 really odd thing where you said you could see you know you hear about auras and and people taking mushrooms or or LSD uh I've never done any of that stuff uh but it sounds 
you know, your perception is totally shifted. So what I heard you say was going into nature, away from that stimuli. Did, did were you still, had, were you still like this? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Are I you still like this now, or did oh, it yeah. just did, yeah it, it really hasn't gone ever? It's never gone away. Wow. Yeah, I've learned to shut some of it off. Okay. So I've learned to shut it down. And I only open it up when I'm working with a client in a session. Ah, that's how it okay. is now. I but see. But for a, for a long time, I could just see everything, and it's like it's none of my business. I don't want to know. I don't know, you know. So I really, I don't know how I shut it down, but I just kept asking to shut it down. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But, okay, well, that's a great segue into your work. Yeah, so so when I have, I'm doing a session, so I have that person's permission, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, and we've set up and, and the person um, has an intention of what they want to work on. Mm -hmm. So then we get into a relaxed state and I can start seeing all these different dimensions which is what opened up during the Kundalini awakening is, so I see multiple dimensions and I see what's going on in the DNA and what's happening in the neural programming. And so then we go in and start working on shifting what's happening. And, and how does it shift with gratitude? I mean, we yeah, talked about that's it. part of it. Yeah. It's one of my main things is gratitude. Wow. Yeah. That energy. Yeah. So if someone comes to you and they're troubled. Yeah. Is it a low energy that they're having or dealing with? You spoke of the radiation being yeah, low. Yeah, usually it's complex. Sure. My first clients were sexually abused women. They just hmm. flocked to me. I was the only female PhD in the town I was in at the time, and so they all just came. It wasn't like I was advertising that's what I was doing. but And so it was profound to go in and see what was happening and start to shift all that goes on from sexual abuse. And it takes mm. a tremendous toll on a woman's body. Mm-hmm. That stays yeah, with a woman her. Or a man. Yeah. 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 So I'm then sure. I yeah. Then I moved away from that. And um so it's changed over the years. I've been doing this work for about forty years now. So it's shifted dramatically. Mm-hmm. What's happening and and I've gotten better, and it's like humanity is at a point where the clients I work with, it's like the, the healing's taking place much more quickly than it did 40 years ago. It's really profound to watch. It's hmm. very exciting, yeah. 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 So now it's more like programs or patternings from trauma from your childhood that are 
influencing every aspect of a person's life. And so as that shifts, their whole life changes. So it's really gratifying to help people. And most of these programs are in the unconscious. So we know Mm -hmm. something's going on, but we can't put our finger on it. We can't see it. So I Hmm. help people to see it. Okay. Yeah. You said it's complex, so I imagine the answer is complex, but you can (laughs) see it somehow with this way of seeing. that. Well, the unconscious is just a dimension. So it's just going into that dimension and seeing what's happening there. I became really clear about this when COVID hit. When COVID first hit, I was on the couch for days, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then it was Mm. like I was, this blanket of fear kept me from moving. And I kept looking at it and going, this isn't my fear. This is the collective conscious fear, Mm. this global fear of COVID. Mm -hmm. Just kept me immobilized for days. And then I went, oh, I, you know, I don't want to be immobilized. And it felt like I wasn't supposed to create boundaries around not taking on this global fear, but I created all these boundaries hmm. inside my body. And that's when I started writing the, my memoir. And that's when I started working on this map I've been creating on the multiple dimensions and what's happening on each dimension. So in this collective unconscious, we can create boundaries in our bodies so we aren't so overwhelmed by global events. Hmm. And if we aren't overwhelmed, then we can create new ways of being in the world that are beyond all the fear and the war. Hmm. So, but at first we have to separate ourselves from it. With the boundary. In the unconscious. Yeah, in the unconscious, because it's all kind of this huge murky pile of low frequency energies. Hmm. And they've been growing since the beginning of humanity, and it just keeps getting worse. And so as we clear that out of our bodies, then our brains can function at a better, higher level, and we can see new possibilities of creating hope and creating a new reality for ourselves and for the whole world. Wow. So you were born in a household with by a father who built bombs, hydrogen bombs. You were affected with this. You lived in great pain, which you dealt with. You were devalued as a as a female in our culture 
told that you by your mother, it sounds like, uh, and your father, uh, but the culture, of course, uh, as well, when we're trying to change some of that. I've got a long way to go. I've got two girls, so I'm all on board <laughs> for changing that. <laughs> and they are too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of them has a little keychain from Taylor Swift that says, F the patriarchy. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm your father. <laughs> I know you don't mean F your father, but I know what you're saying here. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm on board that. Yeah. With that. Yeah. But I'm definitely on board, uh, you know, bringing more peace and well-being and love and healing, um, and so, you know, and I feel, again, very grateful that I have been a part or at least witness in a small part of your journey, because I remember periods where you would disappear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we were all sort of like, well, where's Cynthia? Yeah. But then you'd come back and you'd have a story to tell. <laughs> About some dimension or some new insight. And I I think that happened a little bit when the Oppenheimer, um, did it not a few months ago? Yeah. Something like that happened. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. 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 When I saw that movie, it kind of made... I see these kinds of movies and my life makes more sense hmm. because my dad had these private classes with Oppenheimer at UCLA. There were a couple other men and my dad, and that's when Oppenheimer was transferring all the information from all the physicists at Los Alamos of how to build a bomb. Hmm. And so that's was my very early childhood. And then, my dad went off and he was part of the Manhattan. We lived in Southern California, but he would fly to the Manhattan project and then he would fly to Hanford. So he was, and then he'd fly to Washington DC and that was his little trip. And then he'd go to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where they were doing the uranium for the bombs. Um, forgotten what I was going to say. Oh, so so he was a part of building the first bomb. And then he was a part of transfer, transferring the bombs to go to Japan. He was, hmm. once he told me the story that he was on the uh, train sitting right next to the bomb. There were two bombs that went to Japan when and he was sitting next to one of them, and it was covered with this canvas, and it was going over a, a bridge, and the canvas started ripping. And so he had to have the train, it had an engine on both ends, and so the, tr- the engine took the train off the bridge, and he had to re- have the, he designed how to reconstruct the bridge so the bomb could go across. Wow. So um, 
And then after that, my whole childhood, he built bombs. But it seems like you were asking something else. Well, we're talking about Oppenheimer. Oh, right. And, and how you kind of disappeared for a while. Yeah, I did. And I, I wonder, did. where's Cynthia? Something's, something's going on, and she's yeah. dealing with it. Yeah. But so, she'll be back. Yeah. So what was happening was I have layers of radiation in my body. And so that triggered the next layer of the radiation in my body releasing. Uh, and so when that happens, I throw up, I get diarrhea, I get pretty sick. Mm. And that was going on during that whole time. Um, and part of it was just, as I was talking earlier about the mass consciousness of people were watching that movie. And so a lot of all that consciousness came up and got triggered in me. So it was getting I released. See. So I went and hid for a while. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm always glad when you come back. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. 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 It has struck me that your story is one of the most unusual. And though I may call it weird, it's fascinating. But what strikes me is just how just generous and um, wonderful you are to be around. And when I say that, I mean with the writing. You know, you'll write something and some of us will respond and you're just always so um, thoughtful. And, um, you know, I've always, you're just very warm. Oh, You're one of the you. warmest people I've ever met, I think. Wow, thank you. Which is extraordinary given the circumstances that you were brought up in. And, you know, we didn't talk about it, but your mom had a furious alcohol problem. And you basically suffered from the, the neglect. Mm -hmm. You were passing out as a child, right? With this mm -hmm. probably hypoglycemia. Right, right. And your dad was off <laughs> building bombs and it's just, I just thought, oh my God, this woman has lived an amazing life and I just want more people to know about you <laughs> and the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that so much. Yeah. Yeah. So I know you're, you, you told me that this, this memoir that I saw you write came out, but then the Oppenheimer came out and you, and you realized you wanted to rewrite it. So is that what you're doing now? Yeah, I'm working on it. It seems to be coming along very slowly. Um, there are some things in it that I wanted to include that were triggered by the watching the movie um, that people can hear now. I, before, okay. there wasn't kind of that consciousness for that. And the, the ending of, of, that, of my first memoir, a lot of people said was rather unclear. And so I'm rewriting the ending. Okay. And I'm kind of tying in my life together in a new way so people can or so I can grasp it better, and so my reader hmm. can grasp it better. Because my life is really, really weird. There's 
no doubt about it. And I have trouble getting it and I've lived it. So I can't imagine how hard it would be for someone <laughs> just reading about it. So I'm trying to kind of bring it together at the end in a new way. Yeah, good. So that's what I'm doing. Well, it's amazing as is, and and I encourage people to go and get it. It's it's called Unseen Connections from Pain and Violence to Joy, a memoir by Dr. Cynthia Miller. It's just one of many books you've written. You wrote about uh, one called Radical Gratitude, I believe. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Was that the right title? Yeah, The Art of Radical Gratitude. The Art of Radical Gratitude. And yeah. Um, yeah, they're all on my website. So. And what is your website? It's drcynthiamiller.com. Drcynthiamiller.com with a Y. Cynthia spelled yeah. C-Y-N-T-H-I-A Miller. Wow. Well, I could go for on and on and on because there's so <laughs> many stories that I want to hear about more. Maybe I'll have you back sometime. Okay. We'll do that. <laughs> but I just want to thank you again and show my gratitude for your time today, but just for, for doing this work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I just am so grateful for you and all the help you gave me all those years writing my book with your great feedback and comments. I would write something and go, is it okay to say this? And you would say, oh, yes, I want more. And it was just so <laughs> encouraging. So thank Good. you. Thank you for having me on your podcast and your video. And I really appreciate having you in my life. And thank you. Uh, well, you're welcome. And I just look forward to to seeing what's next. Thank you. So, yeah. <laughs> well, um, until next time then. Until next time. Thank you so much. Bye.